Thank you very much. Good morning. Let me tell you a story, just to begin with. I uh, heard this story from a, a friend, or became a friend, a person just sitting in a service like this, and I suspect there are stories like this in this room. And uh, we'd been talking in the service about what it means to actually live out your faith at work. And I must have said something that struck a spark with somebody, so he came forward very modestly afterwards, and he said, let me share something of my experience. And I asked his permission to retell it, because it was such a wonderful story. He was an engineer, and had a small engineering shop and a, a group of staff that he, he worked with over the years. And one day he just felt the Lord was saying that the vacancy he had he should offer to an ex-prisoner up the road, from the prison up the road. There was a prison nearby, about three kilometres away or so, and so he, uh, he went up to see the, the staff at the prison and he said, I've got a vacancy here if you've got somebody being released in the next little while who might appreciate a start again, send him down to me and we'll do the interview and I'll give him a fair go. And sure enough, that happened. The person came, they interviewed and he took him on, filled the vacancy with the person who had formerly been in prison. And he felt the Lord said, say to him that he should always do that in the future. That was just laid on his heart. So as the years went by, he offered every vacancy to the prison for somebody coming out who had served their time and who would um, appreciate being trained up in this small engineering shop to gain some skills, to gain a new CV and so on. And he said to me, his style was this, that when they came in, he would put down a blank sheet of paper and he would simply say to them, as far as I'm concerned, you've done your time, this is your CV. It's got nothing on it at the moment. Let's build something to put on it so that you might have a fresh start. And for 20 years or so, that had been the way he had employed. And so I said to him, how did that work out? What does that look like on the ground with this kind of person who perhaps hasn't been trained and has been on the wrong side of the, the tracks as far as life is concerned? What does that look like? And he says, well, he said, some of them worked out. Some of them worked for me. Some of them got a new CV, got a great reference, got all of that sort of stuff, and went on into life from a fresh start. I said, what about the others? Well, he said, some of them didn't want the job. He said, some of them started and stole from me. He says, there have been a few that have smashed all my equipment. He says, there's been another good number who have lost me customer after customer after customer because they couldn't handle it. He says, there's been a couple who have assaulted me. And I said, and the numbers, did more people succeed than failed? Oh, he says, no, no, more people made a mess of it then succeeded. And I said to him, why do you do it? And he looked at me and he said, why does Jesus do it for me? Why does he continually give me a fresh start when I stuff up? That's faith at work. Translating the very heart of God into what I do on Monday morning. And we, we sang, didn't we, this morning, take my life, let it be consecrated today. And the, one of the, the challenges of the Christian churches, we've kind of said, take my life except those hours at work, and I'll do anything you want. 
and in, in large portions of the Christian church, sadly, our service of God, our consecration to God, has actually been expressed mostly in the church service. And if I am a deacon or in some churches or on the vestry, whatever church brand it is, or in our church you don't get a title, you just get a job to do. If I'm one of those things and I do it faithfully and I do it well, I'm serving my Lord adequately. And yet there seems to me that we get 40 or 50 hours during the week when we're most awake, hopefully, for your boss's sake, the best hours of our day, which are devoted to this thing called work, which somehow we struggle to hand over to the Lord. And I want to submit, too, that it's one of the toughest places to do that. Let me also take work in its wider sense. Paid employment, yes, but all of life, the task that we're called to, and it might be just raising children. It might, that might be what God has called you or me to do at a certain point in time. It might be caring for elderly parents. It might be just looking after the people next door in some fashion. There's all sorts of expressions to work. So let's explore this for a moment. Um, I won't talk about the Fountain Institute, but here, here's the challenging thought. Tomorrow morning, approximately 400,000. When you see all those zeros, you know it's approximation, right? And uh, approximately 400,000 people will be at work tomorrow. And these are 400,000 committed, active Christians who would, if you like, at the moment, be expressing their faith actively by attending church regularly. And in today's society, which is a little bit down on Christians, if you're attending church regularly, you're probably fairly committed. Nominalism really seems to have gone by the way in recent years. So 400,000 or so tomorrow morning will be at work in some place. Now, the number 30 I've got up there, and it is coming through, isn't it? Sorry that the kind of colours have gone all. The number 30 works like this. It says... And I, I worked as a marketing consultant in Sydney for a while, had my own marketing company, and the general formula in marketing in Sydney was that every person knows 30. And so you're well connected to about 30 people. So if you do a good thing as a company, if you have a good product or if you offer good service, you can reasonably expect on average about 30 people will hear about that. Of course, when it comes to bad things, 150 people know about it, don't they? But so we worked on a, on a basis of 30. So I've put these numbers together and suggested that if there are 400,000 people at work tomorrow and each of us is connected to about 30 people, then that's about 12 million connections in a country of 4 million people. So every person in New Zealand has got at least three Christians on their case. That's what the math says. Now you're smart, aren't you? You're ticking it over and saying... But there are people who don't know any Christians. And that's one of the problems. And in this room, I suspect we could get three or four or five circles of 30 if we wanted to, couldn't we? Each of us connecting to each other, closed circle, all Christians. Nobody else gets in and nobody else gets out and there's our 30. And in one sense, that's the challenge of the Christian church. We have circled the wagon somewhat. We find that our friends are, are Christians we find that the people we socialize with are Christians. We want our children to hang out with the children of Christian families because the common values are something that we cherish. We love to go to church for our teenagers because they get into a youth group which hopefully does better and nicer and more moral things than 
otherwise. And over time, we gather amongst ourselves, and there's a whole lot of people now who don't know Jesus. And this afternoon, as you know, is the Santa Parade. A few years ago, a friend of mine went to the Santa Parade and with his children was standing there watching the, the floats come by, and there was a Christian float in the Santa Parade, one, and it came by and it had a nativity scene. And he overheard a young mum with her two kiddies talking about each float as it came past. And here comes, came the nativity scene. The kid said, what's that, mum? What's that, mum? What's that, mum? And as, as children do. And mum said, well, there's a sheep and there's a donkey and there's a goat. She said, I don't know what the baby's about, but that's nice, isn't it? We have a world that doesn't know Jesus. And we need to take responsibility for that because Jesus has placed us here to represent him. And one of the challenges is that people simply don't know Christians anymore for two reasons. One, Christians are very, keeping very quiet when they're out there because it's a bit hard. And secondly, we're not building relationships. So I praise God for the workplace because by the grace of God, he takes you and I and he places us in a position and then puts a real, live, genuine pagan alongside us and entrusts them to us. That's the joy of the workplace and that's where our best hours are. And I find that these are the questions that when I talk to Christians about why it's so hard, these are the issues. I don't know, I don't believe, I'm not sure that this is what God has called me to. Sometimes they ask these questions. Is there not more meaning to life, to work, than this? Especially if you're in a really boring, routine job. And then there's a whole lot of people who say, you know, expressing my faith here is too hard. How do you do it when you're at work? It's not like going down on Queen Street on a Friday night, is it, or a Saturday night? and sharing the gospel with somebody, you'll never see that person again. But this person alongside me, if I have to share the gospel with them, we've still got to turn up and work together tomorrow. And what if I get it wrong? What if I get offside? What if I break the relationship? What if they get offended? All of those sorts of questions. And what if the boss catches me talking about Jesus as well? My word, what will happen then? And it all seems too hard, and we're not very good at skilling ourselves on this area. So they say, I know, I'll be on the door at church. The Lord will be happy with that. And don't get me wrong, that's a good thing to do. But we said, take all my life and let it be consecrated to you, to thee. And Paul writes to the Colossians, and he says, in everything you do, in everything you do, do it as unto the Lord. So here's the challenge. Only you know your workplace. You know the context in which you express your, your week. How, what does that look like if you say, take this position, Lord, and let it be a missional service to you? Or is it that we actually think work's a curse of the devil, that he's sent to torment us? A couple of weeks ago I preached about heaven in our church, and I spent most of the time talking about how we would be working in heaven. And the expressions of disappointment on their faces was shocking to see, even outweighed only by the shock on their faces when I suggested to them that if, if their picture of heaven was an eternal church service, it almost makes the other place sound attractive. I don't sing, you see. It drives me nuts singing. The thought of heaven being singing forever. You know, there, God has to do a redemptive work in me, doesn't he? 
All right, let me, let me move on for a moment. Oh, this little picture is just to, to highlight that point. Of your waking hours in the week, the brown bit is the time you spend in church. The yellow bit is when you're not there. How is that consecrated to the Lord is the challenge. And a good portion of that yellow bit, a very, very good portion of it, you're at work. You're working for a boss or you're employing somebody else. You're, you're producing things and so on. Here's a question. Is there a, I can't quite see with the lights here. Is there an accountant in the room anywhere? There's always an accountant somewhere. Would you come forward for me just to help me here for a moment? I'll even give you a microphone if I can figure how this works. The display is supposed to come on. It's not doing it. Sorry. Technically challenged. Come up on the stage. There we go. This is your one. Thank you. You into public speaking? <laughs> Sorry, what's your name? Judith. Judith. Hello, Judith. My, I'm Martin. I don't know if everybody knows you. Do they all know you, do you think? I am you, the church accountant. You are the church accountant. <laughs> Full time. All right, do, do you work during the week in an accountancy firm, practice? I have my own practice. You have your own practice. Here's the thought. If I said to you that your accounting practice was a ministry of the Lord, what would you say? I attempt to make it that way. You attempt to make it that way. Now, I didn't even use the word mission, because Rick Warren has spoilt the nest a little bit, bless him. Because Rick Warren said there's ministry over here and mission over there. Church, life, you know how it goes? And I've, I put it to you that, that accounting, your accounting practice is a ministry. Because the two are not separate, are they? Ministry and mission. Whoever said that you could separate those two? So rather than just a mission, a ministry of the church, a ministry of the Lord, would you feel comfortable with that? Yeah, good, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Folks, can I introduce your accountant back to you as, a, as one of your missionaries, as a ministry expression of the church in her accounting practice, and in her spare time she does the accounts for the church? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had a pastor of a larger church in Auckland, the church I won't name, um, on an interview in Radio Rima at one stage, and I, I, all the staff of the church were listening in, and there's about 25 staff at that point, and so I sort of tongue-in-cheek introduced him on air as as a person who had a Christian mission, and then he left his mission to go and work for the church. Boy, did they get offended at the church end, because they thought that was the mission. Do you understand what I'm saying when I introduce you as a, a person with a ministry and a, and a mission on Monday? What does that look like for you? What could it look like? Now, you don't have to answer that, because it's a really hard question. <laughs> Let me take that back. Thank you for, for helping me there for a moment. I don't... I don't suppose we've got a used car salesman here somewhere. <laughs> is there one? There is a ministry opportunity here. Now, I wonder what went through, thank you very much, I wonder what went through your mind when I positioned it like that. Accountants just work with figures, don't they? I notice you're saying no, and I'm sure you're saying no. My word, do accountants work with people? Yes, they do. Does that make it a ministry then because they work with people? 
Well, it's a thought, isn't it? It helps in our minds. But I want to suggest to you, even if you didn't but work with figures, it's still a ministry. In everything you do, do it as unto the Lord. The Lord didn't say, just for work with people. Now, I grew up in a church. I I did the statistics the other day. We've got uh, 25 nurses, and we've got about the same number of school teachers, and... They're the two largest groups of employees. And the reason is, in the years that I grew up through church, we were told the ministry of the Lord is always with people. So go on into a people-focused work. So the women all became nurses and teachers, and the men didn't want to go to nursing, so they became teachers anyway. I became a school teacher because of that. My first job was as a school teacher. And why? Here was my decision when I came out of university with a degree in, in economics... I had to decide what I was going to do, and I remember distinctly. I actually went and sat on top of Mount Victoria, because uh, I thought that was nearer to God, and, um, or something. You know, you go for a quiet space, and you say, Lord, I've got to make up my mind what I do, want to do here. And there were two jobs that had come my way, or two offers of career. One was to go school teaching, and the other was to join a company which was wanting some, a graduate from, from university, uncluttered by anybody else's training, and they wanted to train them up to become a Pacific Rim manager for their firm. So what do you do? And the answer is you go for the one with the lousy pay, don't you? And I became a school teacher. Because my thinking was wrong, because I said I should go school teaching because that's with people, where the other one is with statistics and figures and money. My decision was right, because that's where I met my wife. I've got to say that just in case she gets the recording or anything. And, but the logic and the reasoning was wrong. I did it for the wrong reason, because the Lord doesn't make that distinction. In everything you do, says Paul, do it as unto the Lord. And if you don't get to work with a single other person, but you're still doing a worthwhile job in its own right... A worthy job, you do it as unto the Lord. He who is your master, says Paul, will reward you for doing it as unto him. All right, let's move on. Let me do a little, go back to Jesus. And uh, a little quick flick through the story of Jesus, because I love to come back to Jesus when I talk about work. And this is the storage, and you know, this is some artworks which are, are well represented on my computer and not quite so well on the screen, and even brilliantly somewhere in a museum. And if you'll notice, the main characters in this case, um, Mary, she looks like Isabel of Spain, because that, Isabel probably paid for the painting, and so you reward her by making Mary look like Isabel. And uh, there's this code in this artwork. And so the story of Jesus, you know, the birth story and uh, the dedication in the temple, you know the story so well. The flight to Egypt, you've got to get the code here as well. If the halo is solid, the person is divine. If the halo is open... They're a saint, and if there's no halo, you've got problems. And, um, and so here see, we, we see Mary approaching divinity here um, in the eyes of the artist, at least, the mother of God painting. We get Jesus in the temple. We know that story of his growing up. And so you go through his baptism. You go to the wedding at Cana. You know the story of healing and teaching and raising from the dead. You know the story of Zacchaeus. You know the resurrection story. You know, the story of his um, burial and his ascension depicted beautifully in magnificent works of art all across the world in museums and so on. And this is our story of Jesus. I want to tell you the story of Jesus for a moment from silence. 
visit Jesus at the first supper. Let's know and understand that Jesus grew up a human being. He was a baby once. I've got two babies in my house, grandchildren at the moment, and they spread food everywhere. I bet Jesus did that. We somehow have an image, don't we, that Jesus never spat his food out. Because he couldn't do that, would he? Because that's sinful, isn't it? Well, I suggest it's not. But we have this kind of holy, spiritual, mystical picture of Jesus. Jesus would learn to work, walk. Does he fall over? Of course he falls over. Does he ever stub a toe? Yes, he does. Does he ever cry with pain? Yes, he does. Because the Bible says he was tested in all ways like we are. He was very human. Oops, where did that come from? <laughs> I don't know if they went on holidays in those times, but if they went on holiday, they, they, they would take perhaps a holiday trip to visit family, to visit a birthplace. Get to where you were born, Jesus. We're going to take you there. Oh dear, they've pulled down your birthplace. But here's where the story also gets interesting. At some point, Jesus becomes what a carpenter's son becomes. He's the oldest son. And one would expect him in a Jewish society, being the older son, to take on the trade or the business of his father. Forget about career guidance. You don't get those choices in Jesus' time. So he carries pieces of wood. Now, in fact, he probably would have carried lumps of stone as well because, because Joseph and Jesus are described actually as a tektron, a worker in stone and wood. We've turned him into a carpenter with our sense of wood. Jesus was probably a stonemason. And if you go to Israel, you'll know why. Most of Israel was built with stone, not with wood. And so he probably had a chisel and carved out pieces of rock to build houses. The tektron is a worker in stone as much as they also work with wood. And that's what Jesus would have done growing up as a young boy. And he would have helped Joseph in that very small little business operation being a village tektron. As well as that, of course, we know that Joseph died somewhere along the way. We're not told when, but we know that Joseph passes away. And as the oldest son in a Jewish family, Jesus gets responsibility for his mother. And the Old Testament says that the oldest son, a member of the family, will get a double portion of the inheritance, which is shared out, so that they might look after the mother. And so Jesus would look after Mary. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us that in the journey through his life, when Jesus comes into his public ministry, we hear all about his mother traveling everywhere with him. In fact, there's a great sermon sometime on Mary, the first disciple. She was the first to follow him all the way through. And she pops up time and time and time again through the story. In fact, at Pentecost, she's still there with the disciples in the upper room. And, uh, and so Jesus will get responsibility to look after his mum. And then Jesus comes to the Jordan. And we, we haven't got many comments on this silent phase, but it's the bulk of Jesus' life. About 18 years of his life so far, he's been an oldest son and he's been a tetron, a carpenter. And then he comes to the Jordan and he starts a different expression of his ministry. I say a different expression because the words here that are used, and by the way, that reference is wrong. There isn't a Matthew chapter 36. I'm not quite sure what cut and paste does for me sometimes. But these are the words, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. What had Jesus done? 
to deserve that accolade from God. I mean, is there anybody else in the room that will put their hand up and say, gee, I'd love to hear the words of God over me? Those words? Anybody anybody join me on that? Wouldn't that be neat to have God from heaven say over you, this is my beloved son or this is my beloved daughter, whom I love with you, with him, with her, I am well pleased. What had Jesus done to deserve these words? Isn't that an interesting thought? And all we know is that he'd been a good son to his mother. She was still with him. And he'd been a tectron. And the only real reference we're given is Luke 2.52, which says, the boy Jesus grew up finding favour with God and people. Now, how does a carpenter, a tectron, find favour with people? Any offerings? Does a great job, because there's nothing that gets you more offside than a tradesman who doesn't do a good job, right? He finds favour with people. So we read into that something interesting. Now, we also know from the life of Jesus at this time, during the years he's growing up, and in these early years, Herod is building a city three kilometres down the road from Nazareth. It's the city of Sapphiris, which will be his administrative capital. It will become a city of 45,000 people, which is a big city at that time. It will have theatres and coliseums, or the equivalent of a coliseum, a sports arena. It will be a magnificent place. And, uh, and Jesus is a skilled tradesman three kilometres down the road. What are the odds that Jesus would have been called upon recruited to work on Herod City. And the recruitment process is gentle. You'll do this or else. Because in those days they didn't hesitate to take all the tradespeople and force them to work for them to build their cities. And so we put the facts of history together and we we don't know from Scripture, but we can reasonably fill that silence. Here's another clue that he might have found him in Sapphiris. Later on in John, we're told, I think it's John chapter 8, we're told that a group of women supported the ministry of Jesus. And one of them was called Joanna. And Joanna was the wife of Herod's financial administrator, whose home and office was in Sapphiris. Isn't that interesting? I wonder if Jesus caught her attention when he was building her house. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us. But you wonder how the wife of Herod's administrator gets to become a sponsor of the ministry of Jesus. When her home is in a city called Sapphiris, which the scriptures don't even say he visited. So I'm putting things together from the silence of scripture and saying, hear this. Jesus had a normal life and he comes to the Jordan at approximately age 30 as we understand it. And God says these words over him. God says these words over him one more time. Later on, Mount of Transfiguration, at the end of his public teaching ministry, on the Mount of Transfiguration, what does God say? This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. This is my son whom, with whom I'm well pleased. Equal commendation for these two expressions of ministry. God is equally pleased. And I find in here a powerful affirmation that Jesus himself did on Monday morning what you and I do on Monday morning. He went to work, 
He does his job. He does it well. And God is well pleased. There's a challenge for us. That what I do tomorrow is something that God, with which God is well pleased. Let's go back to the creation story. It's always good to do that. I want to build something from the scriptures here. In the creation story, God make, has a brief. He says, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. We used to quote that verse about the New Zealand railways. The Lord God made every creeping thing. Don't tell the people at Toll. So God created humankind in his image. In his image he created them, male and female. He created them. The, the words of our creation, the words of our purpose, that we will have dominion. We're going to be placed in charge. We have a work to do. Now, note this is Genesis chapter 1. It's not after Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 talks about sin expressing itself in the world. Genesis 1 talks about you and I getting a job description. Work is God's idea, not the devil's. Work is a blessing, not a curse. Now, we know that work has been distorted by sin, but it is God's idea, and he called it good. Here's an interesting thought. When you read those two chapters, and you all have to go home and do this, read Genesis 1 and 2, and find out how many times it portrays work, and compare it with the number of times it portrays worship. It's an easy comparison. It's about 35 to 0. Those two chapters never talk about worship. But it talks a lot about the job we'll do. What am I saying? Does that mean we're not created to worship? Or is all of life committed to the Lord, serving the Lord, actually the most profound act of worship we can give? You see, we have to get out of our heads this dualism which says that worship is what you do on a Sunday morning with music. It is worship, but it's not the only expression of worship. A life well lived, a job well done, a task well fulfilled as unto the Lord is a very, very profound expression of worship. And we need to really get that into our soul. And in, in this creation story, we, 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 as we follow it through, Genesis 1 and 2, we discover that, that God sets up a number of very fundamental relationships, obviously one with himself. He's very keen on us. He wants to fellowship with us. God is enriched by knowing us. Excuse me, it's not the phone, it's just my timer telling me not to go too long. God is enriched by knowing us. And uh, he sets us up to relate to one another, creating us first as colleagues. Before anything else, we become helpmates to one another, colleagues. And uh, he creates us to, uh, to have a relationship with work and obviously with the rest of his creation, which, which fits in. Our job is to care for that. And in that context, we actually know who we are. When my relationship with God is right, when my relationship with the other person is, is good, when I know what I'm to do in this life on a daily basis, when I know my relationship to creation, the world I live in, then I know who I am. I don't have problems with self-image here. 
And it's interesting that those very relationships are the ones that were distorted by sin. And if I can just focus on the work one, the curse of sin is that work which was a pleasure has become hard. You'll do it by the sweat of your brow. So it's not that it's not ordained of God, it's just become hard. The relationship with each other, often expressed in marriage, um, from, from Genesis chapter 2 there, is, is not now a cursed relationship. Well, it is cursed in that sin has spoilt it, but it's still an ordained relationship. Does that make sense? Before the fall, there's marriage, and we at every wedding service we say, this is ordained of God. And we know it needs redemption. That's what Jesus came to do. Romans 8 tells us that. So work is ordained of God, it needs redemption. It needs you and I to bring it back to what God intended. And just a final picture. This is the, the Lord we serve. We created in his image. These are the words that describe how he works. Now, you won't find some of these words in Genesis. I've taken a modern understanding that when God names things, he's classifying them as well, isn't he? The, these are birds. These are, are, are cows. These are, these are, these are. He's classifying them organizing them. This is the kind of stuff that is spoken of, of God in those two chapters, the activities which we would see as working activities. And uh, here comes the list that talk about our work. This is Genesis. This is God's intent revealed. And I just want to point the connections between the two. We work as God works. And some of these I can just link very directly and we'll talk about that some other time. Here's the challenge of our faith in everything. In everything we do, we do it as unto the Lord. And next week, I propose to put some real legs on that and give you some suggestions to what that might look like, practically on the ground. Got to come back next week for that. Reuben, back in your hands. It's quite a paradigm shift. Start thinking about our work as mission, not just my job as a pastor, but our jobs, your job as mission, as worship, as ministry. And uh, we certainly want to be the kind of church that takes an all-of-life view of mission and ministry, that we are leaving this place, going back into our jobs this week as missionaries, as ministers, as worshippers. And uh, we need to get out of this dualism that, that splits up the world into the spiritual and then the secular. That is never part of the biblical story. So thank you for opening that up to us, Martin. We look forward to what you've got to share with us next week. Why don't we pray, and we'll enjoy morning tea. Father, we thank you that you have called each of us, that we are all ministers, we are all pastors, we are all missionaries. We may not work for a church or on the mission field as we've defined it, but God, you never created the world with this big split in it. You've called each of us to do whatever it is that we are doing, whether it's paid employment or not. God, would you help us to shift our thinking on this? Would you help us to start seeing what we do as a mission field and as a calling, a divine calling? Help us to see our workplace as a sanctuary. Help us to see it as spiritual, a place where we can express our own humanity and live redemptively and work out your story wherever we are. Show us what that means practically, Father, and help us to keep this burning white hot in our minds as we move through this week. And we ask for your strength and your power to do that. Thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. Mobilize us, energize us, 
Renew us for our mission in the world this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Say hi to somebody you don't know on your way out this morning. Chat to each other. Go and enjoy some morning tea. We'll see you in the gymnasium next Sunday, 10 o'clock.